are entering the Freedom Hut. The transcript is out of the so-called whistleblower in the Ukraine-Trump affair. And guess what? It's not what the media said it was going to be. We'll get into this latest hoax effort to destroy President Trump. And also, what does cancel culture look like in practice? A story that will bring the costs home to everybody. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I think I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. But they went there and they wanted to force the new president to do things that they wanted under the form of political threat. They threatened him if he didn't do things. Now, that's what they're accusing me of, but I didn't do it. I didn't threaten anybody. In fact, the press was asking questions of the president of Ukraine, and he said, no pressure. I use the word pressure. I think he used the word push, but he meant pressure, but it's the same thing. No push, no pressure, no nothing. It's all a hoax, hoax. It's all a big hoax. And the sad thing about this hoax is that we work so hard with all of these countries. And, I mean, really hard. This has been, I've been up from early in the morning to late in the evening and meeting with different countries, all for the good of our country. And the press doesn't even cover all of this. And it's disappear. It's really disappointing also to those countries that are with us and spend so much time with us. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. I told you we'd be here. Looking at the transcript, I read it first thing this morning. Looking at it a few times before it broke that it was out there in wide release. And it's a very normal conversation. Conversation between President Trump and his uh, presidential counterpart over in Ukraine, a U.S. ally that has needed substantial assistance from the West in recent years. And what ended up happening? Well, Trump brought up bad things going on back in the 2016 election with interference and talk a little bit about crowd strike. And there's some discussion about, hey, we're looking at it. And that's an ongoing investigation, folks. DOJ is still looking at that. That's completely on the up and up. Everything 2016 related should be able to be discussed openly between the president and any counterpart out there. And then Zelensky, the Ukrainian, brings into the discussion that he might be talking to Giuliani. And then and then Trump says, you know, you got to look into this stuff with Hunter Biden. I think it's I've heard there's bad stuff going on there. And that's that. No quid pro quo. No do this or else. And. No, no, in any way. And now they're going to say, oh, the transcript's not exact. But there's no implication that if Hunter Biden didn't do anything wrong, Trump expects anything bad to happen to anybody. He's just like, look into this. Democrats have been obsessively investigating Trump and his family members and his associates for three years, finding the most ridiculous and flimsy excuse, the dossier. Carter Page, George Papadopoulos firing Comey as if Comey should have been fired a hundred times over. Whatever it is, they find some reason. They're even trying to change laws in states to get his tax returns, okay? Change laws to go after one person. 
And now they're going to tell us that he's the president and he's not allowed to say to a foreign counterpart in his conduct of foreign policy, can you get some answers on this? Because this was a big deal. I thought interference in the election was a big problem. Trump wants to know if there was corruption and he wants to know if there was any other interference going on. And there are some reports that are out there about how the Democrats were digging around for dirt on Trump in Ukraine. Democrat operatives during the election. So I'm sorry, they can't have it both ways. It doesn't get to just be whatever the Democrats say whenever they want to say it. And we have to sit here in silence. They overpromised on this. It's not what they said it is. This was a get Trump operation. We all could see it coming. And once again, I mean, the, the, the upside of this is that if you are a a normal American who has not been infected with Trump derangement syndrome, uh, if you're somebody that just looks at things as they are, you come out of this once again without having to, you know, those of us without Trump derangement syndrome, we're right and can walk around knowing that the smug, lib elites in the Democratic, uh, Democratic Party and the media who look down on us for supporting Trump are the actual fools when the facts come out. So you could say this is business as usual, America. This is exactly as we thought it would be. But the Democrats are pretending like it's a victory for them. They keep saying that Trump pushed Ukraine to investigate Biden. Notice how they keep saying, I, I think that they're doing this on purpose. Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden was doing doing stuff in Ukraine. He doesn't have some special protection because he used to be the vice president's son. There are serious allegations out there about him. The allegations against Trump are crazy. Okay, that he I'm talking about the Russia collusion ones that he worked with a foreign power to to cheat in the 2016 election based on just fantasy and hearsay and nothing. And this was sold to the intelligence community. Well, it was bought and paid for by the Hillary campaign and then handed to the intelligence community, to the FBI and used against him. And now this left this Democrat media apparatus is going to lecture all of us about fair play. President didn't break the law. DOJ has already ruled on this. And, oh, I know they're also Barr. They hate Barr so much. Barr is one of the most important figures in this administration right now because he knows the law and he doesn't back down. Thank heavens that he's in the role that he's in. He's a an asset to the Trump administration, and I would say an asset to the American people. Um, but, you know, there's, there's just all this fake reporting out there, too. There was this claim that the Washington Post has that, uh, that the new DNI, acting DNI, Joseph McGuire, said that if he couldn't testify about the whistleblower complaint, he was going to resign. DNI McGuire, acting DNI McGuire, says... That's not true. That's a big claim to get wrong. Why would the Washington Post run with that? You see, they run with the damaging story and then they run away when the facts come out or they run with the damaging story. And then and this is what you've seen. Then the libs, then the Democrats pretend that what has been delivered is what was promised. But that's not the case. But they create a frenzy around it, a focus. They try to make it as damaging as possible for the president. They prepare the battlefield ahead of time do everything that they can to make sure that it is skewed against Trump and against all of his people. But this just came up a few minutes ago. The 
Amazon Washington Post just put out a fake article that acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, who I've gotten to know, and he's a tough cookie, and I was surprised, I was shocked to hear this, was going to quit blaming the White House for something that they wouldn't let him talk openly, freely. And I was shocked because I know Joe and he's tough, tough guy. And I was really surprised to hear he was going to quit before I could even either talk to him or talk to anybody else. He put out a statement. I, I didn't speak to Joe yet, but he said, at no time have I considered resigning my position. In other words, the story in The Washington Post was a fake. A fake, folks. Fake news. A big fake news story on a day when everyone's paying attention. It really matters. What a shock. It's almost like the Democrats are just trying to do everything they can to damage this president. And they don't care what damage they do to their credibility along the way. We have a lot more on this. Stay with me. Getting the transcript is a good step. But is the complaint we need. That is the gravamen of this resolution. It is the whistleblower's complaint, not the transcript, that we need and are asking for in this resolution. And so I further ask that the resolution be agreed to and the motion to be reconsider be considered, made, and laid upon the table with no intervening action or debate. I wonder why Schumer would want the, the whistleblower complaint to be public. Well, here's, here's why. The whistleblower is clearly anti-Trump, and so the complaint is going to be an anti-Trump zealot's editorial about a phone call he or she did not even hear, but then brings into account all the, oh, undermining our democracy and destroying our this and our that and all this other stuff. Does anyone really think that this is a coincidence that we're supposed to believe that uh, they just found the one, the one thing that they really needed was this to get to impeachment. No, they were, they were, there was always going to be an excuse, whether it was the emoluments clause or, or whatever. There was always going to be a moment that the Democrats would seize on and say, oh, now we finally got Trump. One, one thing from the transcript I wanted to note, because I don't forget the lies that the libs tell. You know how they've been saying all along that Trump was Putin's puppet? Because that was necessary. They, they really tried to demean the president and say that he would do Putin's bidding and he was weak on foreign policy with Russia to the point where they'd even say that he was an unwitting asset of the Russians, that he was a traitor. I mean, I haven't forgotten these things. This was said on CNN. This was said on MSNBC by people who had been very senior in the intelligence community. Well, in this transcript, what you have on the Russia uh, on the Russia Trump Putin's puppet nonsense is the Ukrainian president thinking that he's having a confidential conversation. President uh, Zelensky, he is effusive with praise for how much the Trump administration has helped Ukraine and is critical of the EU, notably Macron and uh, Macron in Paris. And uh, what's her the little uh, German prime minister? I'm, for, I'm blanking on her name. You know, what I'm talking about Merkel. Thank you. Angela, yeah, guten Tag. She's still running things in Germany. Uh, but he's critical of how bad they have been at really helping Ukraine, specifically on Russia sanctions. 
So in an an honest and unguarded moment here, you have a guy who's saying, look, the Europeans aren't that great on Russia stuff. Mr. Trump, you've been great. This is so weird to me, folks, because, and I'm being sarcastic, (laughs) because the media has been saying that Trump is Putin's puppet and soft on Russia for years. This was yet another lie. They say things, they say horrible things about the president, they say that he's a traitor, they say that he's awful, and sure enough, when we get more information, we see what the facts are, it is not the case, not the case that Trump is what they have said he is. Um, And, you know, on on this whistleblower, by the way, I I think we're going to find out one day that he or she was wearing an I'm with her T-shirt pretty much all of 2016 in the office and probably has a Biden will save our democracy bumper sticker on his or her Prius. And it's going to be fun to watch the libs at that point pretend that the so-called whistleblower is really a non-political career civil servant. Um, you know, as soon as this situation was unveiling, uh, was going to be unveiled with the transcript, I tweeted out this morning before we all saw it that, quote, get ready for a lot of what Trump did isn't illegal, but it's so much worse from the libs. And that's certainly the case especially worthy of pointing out because they've been using words like quid pro quo and even treason all week. Yep. Treason, folks. It's nuts. It's absolutely insane. But now they're going to act like they were totally spot on here and there was no issue. There was no problem whatsoever. They nailed it. I'm sorry, that's not true. And we shouldn't be a party to their delusion. We should not uh, pretend that what they have been saying here is is correct. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham pointed out that one of the big charges here, one of the big issues, was did Trump threaten to cut off aid? And this is where you get into the quid pro quo, right? You know, what for this or this for what or whatever. My Latin's rusty. Basically means what for what. You give me this, I give you that. Lindsey Graham points out that we were told by the media, by the press, when they were trying to prepare this whole thing and get everybody all fired up about it, that we would see a quid pro quo that Trump had threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine unless they did this. And as Lindsey Graham was pointing out, nope. Joe Biden is a very good friend, but we can't. If you're looking for a circumstance where the president of the United States was threatening the Ukraine with cutting off aid unless they investigated his political opponent, you would be very disappointed. That does not exist. Didn't happen. So if that didn't happen, I just want to know why, why the escalation? How did that get turned into the charge that it did happen? At, at what point in this process... Was it clear that that was not going on, right? At what point in the process was it? I mean, I have to say, I think the Democrats threw that in as part of the narrative here because they just wanted to make everything seem worse, to force the release of the transcript, to force this to become a major issue. I mean, the whistleblower had to know that. Well, I guess, no, I shouldn't say that. He didn't know. He didn't even hear or she didn't even hear what's going on. And now we get dragged into this impeachment mess. I think impeachment's going to be a disaster for Democrats. Disaster. It's very clear that they can't beat Trump on the merits, which has got to be stunning for Democrats who promised us that Trump as president was going to be 
an unthinkable disaster for the country, right? That Trump as president was going to ruin the economy, uh, was going to just, it was going to be horrendous. Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. And it turns out that Trump's record, I mean, you want to compare the first four years of Obama with the first four years of Trump? Trump's a better president. Just, it's just reality. They can get very upset. Oh, Obama saved us from the Great Depression. The Bush administration saved us from the Great Depression. They basically already done all the things that Obama was going to take credit for. And, they, and months before Obama became president. So it's not like there was some big gap in between. What Obama did was come in and say, yeah, let's just spend more money than any president had ever even conceived of spending and just put it on the nation's credit card. Future generations will pay this off. Don't worry about what it does to our, our, the structure of our economy long term. But they can't beat Trump on the merits, so they need these other things. They need to have you know, charges. They need to have allegations. They need to have this steady, this steady string of, oh, my gosh, hysteria, sky is falling. Trump has crossed the line. Trump's gone too far. Trump... No, he, for the one millionth time. He has not crossed the line. He has not gone too far. This isn't the end of the republic. You know, maybe libs should just just try calming down a little bit, just a little bit. Maybe libs should try to focus on convincing the American people that voting for Democrats is not an insane thing to do, given all the crazy stuff that they're constantly promising they will do on the campaign trail. No, instead, we have this over-promising, telling us all that Trump was going to be doing horrendous, did this horrendous thing. It's not the horrendous thing, just like Russia collusion wasn't the horrendous thing, just like the emoluments clause, just, just go down the list. It's always hysteria. It's always insanity because Trump derangement syndrome is very, very real. Because Trump derangement syndrome is the end result of people who have internalized their left-wing politics so much that they don't know who they are in an era where the leader of the free world is not constantly reflecting their own political biases back to them. They got very used to that with eight years of Obama, but now they just can't handle it. They don't know who they are. They don't know what they stand for, other than statism and socialism, but conversation for later. I think the blatant um, disregard uh, of the laws, uh, disregarded the Constitution. It's blatant. I mean, I think uh, rumor out there is that this happened the day after the Mueller report came. I mean, there's just this blatant disregard of the fact that he took an oath to uphold the United States Constitution, that he has to, you know, he can't use the, abuse the power that he has, and he's continuing to do it blatantly in our face, and it's just the only option that we have left. This uh, particular uh, incident uh, shows that the president clearly thinks he's above the law. He is withholding aid um, so that he can pressure uh, a foreign country to dig dirt on uh, a potential presidential opponent. Uh, that is very unconstitutional, and we must hold um, him responsible. I strongly support Speaker Pelosi's decision. If we don't reckon with President Trump's persistent transgressions, the very foundation of this great republic is at risk. The very foundation of it, folks. Chuck Schumer, all about the Constitution. All this 
overheated rhetoric about sacred institutions, about the defense of our republic, about saving our democracy from the Democrats. You know, I think it would just be nice if the Democrats would finally accept that you don't protect the sacred institutions of our democracy by constantly weaponizing those institutions for petty partisan gain. But alas, here we are. Um, I think that, you know, it's just stunning to me to hear some of these Democrat members of Congress who will be very open about the fact that it's not even the whistleblower complaint. It's everything, they say. They need to impeach Trump just because Trump. They need to impeach him because they they hate him so much, because he's so terrible. Here's Mayor Pete with the same, you know, oh, yeah, he, he has to be impeached. It's not just about the call. It's not just about the complaint. But we do know that we have seen in plain view the president of the United States confess to wrongdoing. He didn't look very guilty when he did it, but that doesn't change the fact that it was a confession. And right now we see strong evidence that the American president may have sold out U.S. national security interests to go after a political opponent. That's just the latest in a number of things. Well, that's not true. I wonder if Mayor Pete even cares. I think he doesn't care that it's not true. The president breaks no laws by telling a counterpart when he's running, when he's conducting foreign policy, he breaks no laws by saying you need to investigate corruption in your country. If that corruption happens to be bad for Hunter Biden, well, then that's just too bad. There's no special, oh, you can't run foreign policy if it's going to hurt somebody who's a political rival. Sorry. Just like there's no, oh, you're going to use the FBI, you're going to lie you're going to use a fake dossier put together by foreign, a foreigner with foreign sources, I might add. You're going to run that through the intelligence community. You're going to run that up the chain of the FBI and turn the president's own law enforcement agencies and intelligence community against him, use it against him, then the candidate, of course, but and afterwards the president. You know, where, where's, the, where's the good faith? Where's the fair play there? And then there's this additional story that uh, senators have been pressuring Ukraine, Democrat senators have been pressuring Ukraine to look into uh, different allegations of, of the Russian interference all along here. In fact, it is believed by many people I know who have been very on this story and deep in the weeds and meeting with sources for a long time, uh, specific sources with firsthand information about the dossier. And it's believed that a lot of it really was Ukraine based. So Ukraine looms large. A lot of it, we, we think of Russia, 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 but there's also the Russia-Ukraine aspect of this. And that's something that I think, you know, we're, we might find out more about in the, in the months ahead because of this additional focus on it all. But I would just note that if they really had the goods on Trump, if he was really such a, such a bad guy, um, they would be able to tell us what it is that he did that is illegal. A campaign contribution that they get laughed out of any corporate. That's a joke. He can't tell a uh, a a head of state of a foreign country. Hey, you know, it'd be good if you did this thing. That would be good for your country because, yeah, that would help if he got that foreign leader to do something. That worked out, it would be good for Trump, right? Trump would be able to take some credit for cleaning up corruption or whatever it may be. That's just called doing his job. There's nothing illegal about it.
which is why they, they've gone this legal route and they're trying to stretch. They're trying to stretch our understanding of the law so far so that they can just shoehorn whatever they want into it. It's not going to work this time, but they won't stop doing it. That's why I, I just hated this line from Nancy Pelosi yesterday. The fact is that the president of the United States, in breach of his constitutional responsibilities, has asked a foreign government to help him in his political campaign at the expense of our national security, as well as undermining the integrity of our elections. It's just not true. That cannot stand. It's, I mean, she's he just making stuff up accountable. He didn't no do that. We've seen the transcript. That's not what happened. He said, yeah, looking at what happened in 2016, which the entire apparatus of the federal government's already been doing, and, you know, maybe look at some corruption stuff going on there after the Ukrainian president brought it up himself. If Trump is so bad, can't they stop misrepresenting what he's done? Can't they just tell us what he actually did? No, of course, the answer is they can't do that because that would require them to be honest and they're dishonest. I just watched the speaker yesterday demean the office of the speakership. I understand members when they want to be political, but the power of the speaker is a much different place to be. I listened to the speaker claim that the president violated the law based on nothing that she had read, based upon a whistleblower that wasn't even listening to a conversation with an IG saying that the whistleblower has political bias. What Speaker Pelosi did yesterday uh, really uh, was the worst we've seen yet where she announced an impeachment inquiry without any evidence, without seeing the transcript of the phone call at issue, without seeing any details from the supposed whistleblower. And when you think about what that does, both from the perspective of our constitutional obligation uh, and from the perspective of our national security, uh, it ought to give every American grave concerns that they are dealing with this in a way that is absolutely so such a flagrant disregard of their constitutional responsibility. What was the timing all about? That's one of the things that I really like to focus on. I, I got to discuss this a little bit on Brett Baer's show last night on Fox News. But why did Pelosi pull the trigger on this whole thing when she did? That's important to drill down on. She knew. She knew that the White House was going to release the transcript which I now see, oh, this is the favorite thing. It, it keeps popping up on CNN and elsewhere. The rough transcript. Oh, it's not, a, it's not a verbatim transcript. It was everybody who was listening to it, which is my understanding is a large number of people uh, writing down as it was going on or, or using a, a transcription service of some kind. But it's not, it's not pinpoint accurate. So they're just, they're, the reason they're including that little, oh, it's a rough transcript is just to say, yeah, maybe Trump said some worse stuff, but it just didn't make it into it, right? I mean, then these people call us conspiracy theorists. Another, I think, very important point here is that uh, who or how somebody refers to different components of this, whether they use the term alleged, like it's alleged that Hunter Biden may have engaged in some form of corruption versus the conspiracy theory that Hunter Biden engaged in some form of corruption. Why is it a conspiracy theory? It's not, not, a, not a complicated conspiracy at all. The guy was getting paid $50,000 a month while his dad was running point for Obama in Ukraine. And he has no business getting paid that amount of money. No serious person would have previously paid him that amount of money for anything, never mind for what's going on in a foreign country relating to their natural gas industry. 
But they'll keep calling it a a conspiracy theory. It really is. It really is uh, Orwellian style propaganda that you're seeing. I mean, you turn on CNN all day has some version of White House rough transcript shows Trump repeatedly push Ukrainian president to investigate Biden's son. I mean, yeah, a couple of times in passing, he's like, yeah, you got to look into this stuff that's going on after Zelensky brought it up. We've already gotten into this distinction between looking into 2016, which is completely legitimate, which the Democrats have done ad nauseum. And they're very sensitive to because they know that if we keep digging and we get enough information about what happened in 2016, there will be problems for Democrats. What happened in 2016 was not on the up and up. Nobody thinks it was. Nobody believes. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody. Democrats are crazy. But I think it's very clear. Oh, wow. CNN CNN has one of those panels with like eight people on. I just... I don't even know what that's. Is it just people just really want to be on TV? You know, I mean, one of the eight speak for like a minute. <sighs> anyway, uh, but let's get back into the timing for a second. So Pelosi does this. Yesterday, I said to you when she announced the impeachment inquiry that it was because now there's no turning back. I think that's true. Now they have to at least go forward with the impeachment inquiry component of all of this which means that there's going to be you know, people called on Capitol Hill. There's going to be witnesses and witness testimony and all this stuff. That's, that's all going to occur. And it'll give the Democrats a clear sheet of talking points to use in opposition to Trump in his, during his reelection effort. So that's one thing. This is now the Trump, the hashtag resistance has something to sink its teeth into. Oh, the impeachment inquiry. Will they have an actual impeachment of the president of the United States vote? Will they vote to impeach him or not? I think that the answer is yes, because the Democrats will get so much pressure from their don't from the donors, from the activists, from the base. They want to tar Trump with that going into reelection even knowing that it's going to get nowhere in, in, in the Senate trial and you've got the you know, Senate trial with the chief justice of the Supreme Court has to preside over it. And, you know, that's it's interesting. There's not really that much in terms of rules of the road for the Senate trial other than just, yeah, the Supreme Court justice, uh, that's he's going to he's going to be the judge and people are going to present for and against. And then the Senate votes. So it's it's kind of open. But I would just note that. The timing of this is also very suspect to me, not just because of the creation of the political momentum here. It's not just because now it's very hard for them to go back and say, oh, fine, we're not going to do this anymore. Uh, You know, this is like when you're standing on the edge or on a ledge and you're going to jump and you just have to get the, okay, well, I just got to jump if I'm going to go in the ocean and you just, yeah, I'm going to, you know, once you take that leap, you're there, right? There's no turning back. That's what, this was their leap. Uh, that's a component of it. But also, I do think that they had a little bit of a of a moment of panic after last week's Kavanaugh, deb- Kavanaugh debacle. I and mean, what they tried to do with Kavanaugh didn't get anywhere, didn't go anywhere. And they thought it they thought it was going to be big. They thought that this was going to open the whole thing up. And, you know, oh, we're going to meet you, Kavanaugh, all over again. We've got these two great New York Times reporters who are going to just, you know, all this stuff. Nope. That is not the way that things went. That is not the way that, uh, that it all went down. So now we have to look at, okay, so 
given that Kavanaugh did not get dragged through the mud again. In fact, if anything, inadvertently, those New York Times reporters really helped Kavanaugh because it made their case look even more preposterous. Given that, now, um, you when you look at the IG report in the future, I think that Democrats want to have something to fall back on to say, oh, see, we, you know, we, we were trying to hold Trump accountable, and now he does this whole smoke and mirrors IG report on FISA abuse. Well, let me tell you right now, I, I just, I got a feeling, and how often have I been wrong about this stuff? I think the question, can, uh, we can all answer that one. That FISA abuse report from the IG is going to look very bad for the Russia collusion delusion crowd. It's going to look very bad for uh, the FBI. It's going to be a big black eye for the FBI. We're going to see that there were efforts made to um, hide exculpatory information from the FISA court about uh, particularly Carter Page. Uh, There's going to be clear evidence, I think, presented to show that George Papadopoulos, there was also exculpatory about him that was not included as they were doing the investigation, that effectively you had anti-Trump partisans in the FBI and in the DOJ, including Obama appointees, who had stacked the deck. And so when that happens, it's going to happen probably, I'm going to say late, based on what I'm hearing, I'm going to say late October, early November. I'd say early November is most likely. Democrats wanted to have a solid month here of of runtime with their, oh, but look what happened in Ukraine with Trump and, you know, the, this phone call. It's all just nonsense. But you know what? When I'm talking about the FISA abuse situation, you know what really comes to mind for me? The conversation that I really want a transcript of, well, we'll never get. But I want a transcript of what James Comey, and you know he had to tell Obama a whole bunch of stuff about this. I want to know what Comey told Obama about the investigation to Papadopoulos and the FISA on Carter Page and Russian interference in the late summer, early fall, you know, early fall or even late fall of 2016. That's what I really want to know. And I don't think we're ever going to get that conversation. I don't think we're ever going to find out. But I can tell you this. Just use your reason. Use your, your rational thought processes that. And all of us have, but Democrats suppress. <laughs> Is it really feasible that Comey, even knowing that Hillary was, he thought, going to be his boss, that Comey would have kept Obama in the dark when it came to the investigation? Is that really possible? I don't think so. And there's a whole other chapter here that we have not yet gotten into about what Obama knew, when he knew it, what Loretta Lynch knew, when she knew it, what, you know, other senior members of the Obama administration in the White House, and what do they know about the weaponization of the DOJ and the intelligence community against the Trump campaign? I I can't tell you that I think we're ever going to get those answers, but we should at least remember that those would be very important answers to get. And as we're now having presidential transcripts released to the public of what were supposed to be private phone calls, let's remember that investigating the investigators needs to happen. There is only one dual certified veteran owned background investigation and vetting company, and it is Global Verification Network. Look, background checks are increasingly critical out there in the hiring landscape because there's so many ways 
that people will lie to an employer, create liability for you, big problems down the road. You want somebody that can look into the background of every prospective hire and just make sure that things are as presented. And if there's ever a close call or an issue that's in the gray area, you know that you can get Global Verification Network on the phone. So please, if you are in the HR department of any company anywhere across the country, or if you're running your own business or you're just in charge of hiring, call my friends at Global Verification Network, 877-695-1179. That's 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. I want to thank the whistleblower. We still don't know whether this is the subject of the whistleblower's complaint, but I think this single courageous individual may have had the effect of forcing the White House to provide Ukraine with this funding, knowing that these matters were going to come to light. Um, but this whistleblower has already had a tremendous impact in exposing wrongdoing of the President of the United States and helping protect our national security in a way that his or her boss was unwilling to do. Okay, now let's come back to reality here. Let's let's not just have the shift version. I mean, this is a guy who has never apologized for his role in the absurd Russia collusion mess against President Trump. I mean, this is a guy who has never come to grips with the reality of just what he did there. And if he has, he's just I mean, if he's come to grips with it, he's just decided to bury it and pretend like nothing ever nothing ever happened. Um, but let, let me tell you a bit about the whistleblower. I, I was uh, in the intelligence community, and the idea that somebody would hear about a conversation that the president, who this whistleblower works for, by the way, the president had with a head of state. Let's, re- let's remember that there were lots of people, as we know, listening in on the call. Um, and President Trump would have known that. He did know that, as did the president of Ukraine, who I've got to say, President Zelensky's like, he's looking kind of like a little rising rock star today. He's handling it very well. You know, he's uh, he's definitely come out looking pretty good in this whole situation. Uh, you know, he's not wimpy. He said that Trump didn't pressure him, and he's stood his ground on that. But he's also saying, look, I don't want to get involved in this mess, this nonsense of essentially your insane left-wing lib media coming after us, you know, making uh, dragging us in the center of all this. Um, but I, I would say that you, you think about the whistleblower deciding that this is such an urgent issue. I'm giving you from the from the inside the from when I was inside the CIA for something to have made me want to be a whistleblower, I would have to have direct knowledge of it that I'd know that it was the case, not that I had heard about something, and it would have to be egregious and immoral. Not some politically, you know, oh, you know, kind of sort of maybe. It's like if we're doing biochemical experiments on unwitting American citizens or something like, yeah, that's a whistleblower thing against the intelligence community. You know, if we're uh, doing stuff that we I, I don't know, if we're disappearing people off the battlefield and just executing them and throwing them in a ditch somewhere like, yeah, that's a whistleblower complaint. But I'm just saying, you know, those are the kind of things that would raise conversation the president had with a lot of other people listening i would ask you this was anybody else so troubled by this was anybody else so concerned about this conversation with with between now now we've seen the transcript 
I don't think it's a big deal at all, obviously. A lot of other people in the different national security echelons of the United States government would have also heard this conversation, and they didn't seem troubled by it. So what exactly are we talking about here? What exactly is an issue? Well, you have, and this came out in the, in the report today, there was, and I've been saying all along this is what you could expect, and they didn't get into the details of it, but there was reason for the Department of Justice to believe that this whistleblower was a partisan. And let me say this right now, and maybe we should mark this down. I give it less than 60 days. I said on Twitter today less than 30. I'm going to give myself a little more cushion. Less than 60 days, the whistleblower will come forward. The whistleblower will have a pending or signed major book deal, and the whistleblower will be a cable news anti-Trump contributor probably at CNN. That's my guess. None of that would surprise me. That is my expectation for what's going to happen here. Okay, this is somebody who decided that this was a, this was all a get Trump effort. This was the weaponization of the apparatus of the government against a sitting president. Once again, they keep trying this. They don't care what it does to the trust that any president, any commander in chief could have in the government. So the motivation, I think, was quite clear. And it's strange to me that you would hear about something that you weren't directly involved in. And you think as the whistleblower that you're the one who has to come forward. Okay. Now we move to the Inspector General, Atkinson, right? The Inspector General in the intelligence uh, community. And here's what I'll say, because a lot has been made of what has, you know, of this being passed along and that it's a Trump appointee who passed it along and said that it was an urgent, an urgent matter. Michael Atkinson, he's the inspector general of the intelligence community. All right. Well, this is the issue that I see that jumps out right away. Can you imagine? Uh, wait, 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 hold on. Wait, before I even go there, they keep saying, oh, Trump appointed, Trump appointed. Trump doesn't know who this guy is. Nobody knows really what his deal is. Who knows? He could be a he could be Andy McCabe part two, man. He could be somebody who just despises the president of the United States and wants to use whatever position he can inside a government to get at the president of the United States. Right? We don't know. So this is like when they used it's just a it's just meant to shade your thinking. It's meant to push you toward certain conclusions to say that it's a Trump appointee for them is like saying, well, clearly he can't be biased against the president. Actually, he can. So just put that aside for a moment. The president doesn't doesn't know this inspector general for the intelligence community. Yeah, the guy is like a longtime bureaucrat and he's a lawyer. Great. Good. He, he seems like he can do the job. But now get to the more political angle of this. This is what I see happening here. You have this guy, Atkinson, who's told by this whistleblower, here's, here's what, I, what I want to present. If you're the ICIG, Inspector General for the Intelligence Community, and you don't take any action here, you don't try to take this to Congress or you know, pass this, want to pass this along, uh, well, then you opened yourself up to being someone who gets the Kavanaugh treatment. Because I'm telling you this, the whistleblower was going to either go, you know, going through this process is meant to use the, you know, meant to give greater credibility to the complaint. But as we've seen with many other whistleblower situations in the past, if the process was not sufficient for this individual, 
he or she, I have to wonder if it's a he or a she, I'm curious, but uh, he or she very easily could have just told the story to uh, the press. And then it would be the inspector general, the intelligence community, just like Bob Barr is Trump's man and isn't being honest. And, you know, the guy Atkinson all of a sudden is going to have like Antifa lunatics camping out on his front on his front lawn and yelling at him and chasing him and his wife at a restaurant. See, this is why even when Democrats lose on some of these issues, unfortunately, they win because they send a message. And the message is, if you cross us, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter if you don't do anything wrong. If you cross us, we will destroy you. That is the message. And I think that that it's the message I would note that they are sending not just to Kavanaugh, but to John Roberts, Justice Roberts on the Supreme Court. Uh, The chief justice, you know, you better not touch Roe v. Wade or we'll find we'll have crazy people come out of nowhere and start accusing you of being a rapist when you were a teenager. It'll be insane. It'll be dirty. But who cares? The message is still received, right? With this inspector general report, everyone who's saying, oh, but the inspector general, you know, passed this along. What was the what was the other option when you have a rabid partisan who comes to you and says the president has engaged in election interference. It's a it's a contribution to his reelection and blah, 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 abuse of power, all this stuff. You can either hand it off to the DOJ, which is what they did. By the way, the DOJ declined. The DOJ declined to to prosecute, not even to prosecute this, but to, to view this as a crime. They said, nope, sorry. The referral, uh-uh. It's not a crime. So you've got that, right? You know that the DOJ is under tremendous fire from the left because they say that, oh, it's all you know run by Trump. Well, you know, this is the reality. It is run by Trump. Or I should say they work for Trump, but they are capable of independent judgments, and there are a lot of patriots who work in the Department of Justice, and it's a weak case, and they know it's a weak case. They said, no, sorry, this is, this is nonsense. Uh, but that's how I see this escalating up the chain, and I think it's important because the way that it's being hyped up. Oh, it's an urgent matter. You know, oh, it's an urgent matter and the whistleblower and all this stuff. It's going to take, it took the Department of Justice to say, no, sorry, it's not an urgent matter. And then all this other stuff too about how do you even have a, there's a whole chain of command issue here. How do you have a whistleblower complaint against an executive branch official who's not in the intelligence community and who actually oversees the intelligence community? I mean, this is the equivalent of a whistleblower complaint about like, the inspector general's boss. So where does that fit into the chain of command? But the libs, this was all just an assault on Trump. And in that sense, unfortunately, it has largely succeeded. In that way, they have gotten what they wanted out of all of this. We'll have more in a minute. The nation should not end just at the end of the school day, and that is why we are going to adequately fund after school programs. <laughs> Working parents have a right to know that their kids are going to be in a safe and constructive environment after school. 
they have a right to know that in the summertime their kids are going to get the educational and recreational opportunities that they need. We expand funding for universal education in this country. The more you listen to Bernie Sanders out there on the campaign, the more it feels like he is an anachronism straight out of the Soviet Union. The Soviets had a whole child care system, by the way. They promised that they would take care of all the workers' children all across the country. And, of course, their child care system was terrible, but they had one. This is not a new idea. But our public education system, according to the left, according to the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing of... And no, actually, forget that. According to Democrats across the board, with very few exceptions, uh, the, the problem with public education is... Uh, inequality between zip codes, meaning that some places are wealthier than others, and not enough money in the school system. Meanwhile, we're shoveling more and more money into the public school system all the time. And there are really no major changes that ever come about in the approach. And the public school system, there are great ones, I know. You don't have to tell me about how you went to uh, you know, some fancy public school in the suburbs of Chicago where everybody's a... Uh, Westinghouse scholar and a National Merit scholar. I know those schools exist, but particularly low income and minority areas of the country where public schools are, are almost the almost always the only option. The public schools dramatically underperform. And there Bernie Sanders is talking about it. I just I've got a friend who's a who's a teacher in the New York City public school system. I've talked to her repeatedly in the last six months or so about what it's really like in the system. And she's at a school that has t- plenty of resources, lots of teachers. The teacher per student ratio is very high. The classrooms, everything is brand new. All the books, all the computers, all the whatever they could ever need. And it doesn't get better. The situation does not change. And so at some point you have to ask yourself, okay, well, maybe... We are trying out that old, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result because they are doing the same thing with public education and expecting a different result. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they want universal child care and they want the massive expansion of these after school programs. When if you look at what charter schools that have been very successful and charter schools, particularly in low income and predominantly minority neighborhoods and minority areas of cities, they don't do after-school programs. And there's no after-school programs because you know what they want. You know what they require. A parent or guardian to be there to pick the child up at the appointed time at the end of the school day. They've, you know, at this point they've had the children for, you know, whatever it is, seven hours, eight hours, and it's time for a parent or guardian to pick the child up. And the reason that they have that in place is that it shows that there is a family responsibility for this child's education, that there is buy-in from the parent, there's buy-in from the household for the education that this young person is going through and not, uh, and, and it's not overly reliant on what, in many cases, can just be a taxpayer-funded extended babysitting program with some of these after-school programs. Oh, I know, they're going to tell me, but what about... What about the study of classical music or what about, you know, more sports time or whatever it may be? Uh, Work that into the school day. 
I mean, the reason people get so excited about after-school programs, from what I am told, in cities where this is done, is because it just means more time the parents don't have to be in charge of the kids. And in some cases, unfortunately, and this is very sad, the kids actually like it because the structured environment in the school of whatever the after-school activity is, is a better, more comfortable, safer place than what they're often dealing with at home. But to say that expanding after-school programs is going to have some uh, major effect on education, it's been tried and it has failed. It does not It does not do the things that the liberals say it will do. It doesn't bring test scores up. It doesn't bring reading and math up. If you ever want to be really depressed about the future of this country, just look at, in the biggest cities in America, what the, uh, what the reading and basic arithmetic test scores are in the poorest neighborhoods in that city, and you will see that we have a tremendous amount of work to do. And it's a social, it's a societal project. It requires a lot more than just taking more taxpayer dollars because we ultimately know that the public school system is largely run for the adults of the public school system. It is a jobs program. And this is why you have all this mythology around how teachers are so underpaid. I always hear teachers are so underpaid. I've had jobs where I was underpaid. You know, if you don't like it, get a different job. You know, go, go. If you're a teacher, you obviously have a degree. Go get a job somewhere else doing something else. You also have three months off a year and holidays for the kids. And this is where I know teachers, especially in the public school system, are going to send me, but what about the lesson plans and everything else? Yeah, I'm an adult too. I do a lot of work outside of work that I don't get paid for all the time. Most people that have jobs also have to do stuff outside of work that they don't get paid for. It's called getting it done. So we have a lot of, uh, you know, there's more of this uh, cultural, oh my gosh, the teachers are so underappreciated than you see really with, with any other profession. And I think there's a reason for that. And it's because they don't want people drilling down into where's all this money really going? I mean, you've had a six-fold increase. If you want to want to start tying some statistics to this, a six-fold increase in public schools of administrative staff. In it's either the last ten or the last twenty years, but it's up six x in my lifetime. So you have a whole lot more people who aren't teaching, but who have jobs in the school system doing something, and they're not all nurses either. You don't need that many nurses. So it's a lot of people that are pushing paper around and uh, getting ready to collect their pensions from the city, which is also why city budgets can be in such a mess sometimes. The pensions for public sector workers. Oh, I know I'm making myself very unpopular right now, but it's true. Pensions for public sector workers are, are one of the single biggest drags on the financial health of really almost all of our major cities. So Bernie and the Democrat left, they don't know how to make the schools better, but they don't really care because ultimately it's all about the teachers unions, baby. As long as they're on board, that's what Bernie and the gang really care about. I'm going to tell you all about a nightmare. A story that I think a lot of you will be able to relate to. And I also want to say, I want to point out that when I told you about my, my unhappy situation with Verizon, I will let you know that uh, Verizon resolved it and made good on everything. And Verizon Fios, I was, I was impressed once I let my displeasure be known they stepped up and they handled it, and it is very much appreciated. And, uh, you know, they have really earned my business for many years going forward. But we all hate airlines, right? Because airlines, and I, and I know some of you work for airlines or listen to the show, so we don't hate you. We love you, your team buck. But, I mean, some of your airlines kind of are terrible, let's be honest, right? The way that they treat passengers and people is often highly, highly uh, unfortunate, to put it mildly. 
and everyone has their stories of just it's it's hard to fathom how a sequence of events could happen where you're so inconvenienced and dealing with so much nonsense that uh, you can't look at this and say, maybe if people cared a little bit more, this wouldn't have happened. There was a piece today in the Wall Street Journal in the travel section. It was titled The American Flight That Wouldn't Take Off. This is a nightmare story, folks. I'm going to bring you into it. We're all going to marinate in this flight's agony together. Here's how it goes. Quote, after the third flight cancellation over three mostly sleepless nights, after hours sitting on a plane going nowhere and waiting in long airport lines, the passengers on American Airlines Flight 988 had enough. Some sobbed uncontrollably. A few screamed at airline employees. Some broke down because after being stranded three days, they were out of, out of vital medicine and patience or were losing thousands of dollars of work pay. Quote, for this to keep happening, we just hit our breaking point, says Lindsay Holting, uh, a member of a Baptist church group from Kansas on a mission trip to Peru. I feel like they could have done a whole lot more to get us out of there sooner than they did. Flight 988, a seven-hour trip from Lima to Dallas-Fort Worth on an 18-year-old Boeing 757, suffered four, ouch, four different mechanical problems that kept it grounded uh, three days in a row, starting on September 9th each day, passengers boarded and taxied out, only to end up back in the terminal standing in lines to re-enter Peru, collect luggage, and ride shuttles to hotels. Wow. Producers Brandon and Mark, I would have been, I'm a pretty cool, I'm a pretty cool cucumber. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a reasonably chill guy for the most part, except, except when someone messes with my hair. And I, I will say, though, that I, I, airlines are a, I've just been through with them so many times that I would have been one of the people freaking out. I'm not sure I would have been sobbing uncontrollably. I'm more of a yeller and a salty language yeller. But I think, I think that's where I would have gone on this one. Anyway, the, if you, what's, do you have anything like this that's ever happened? What's the word? I, I had a flight from Boston to New York City, I will tell you. It was an 8 a.m. flight. You're in the air for an hour. I had to do this show at 6 o'clock at night. I was unable to do the show, and I had to run to our affiliate station in Boston and do the show from there because they did two or three of these two hours in the tarmac touchback, two hours in the tarmac touchback, like, and you're stuck on this plane, and it's just, it was, a, it was like, what is this? It's like being kidnapped. You have anything? You have anything like this? Yeah, I was with an entire basketball team. I used to do a little play-by-play -play, uh, in my college days. And we just couldn't find a flight. There was bad weather. We went from one terminal at JFK to another terminal at JFK trying to find a flight. Our luggage ended up getting lost. Luckily, just ours, the broadcasters, not the teams. And we didn't get it back till we were back in New York. So I had to call the game in sneakers because I didn't have my shoes. I had my suit, thank God. I'm a big guy. It's kind of hard to find a replacement suit. Uh, but yeah. It's Eventually, we got to uh, North Carolina, but we went to the wrong town. Had to take a bus. So this oh. is the one you got into. Is this... Is this something that the airline should be blamed for? Or look, when there's bad weather and they don't want to fly because it's a safety thing, I, I think, you know, that's an act of God. You can't, 
if there's a tornado or if there's a hurricane or if there's just really bad hail or whatever it is, get it. But when it's the mechanic, when it's the, oh yeah, we just don't have a plane for you thing, I want to sit there and be like, well, I just don't have money for you then. Like, this is ridiculous. And if you look at the carriage contract that you, everyone checks off on, it's basically like, yeah, the airline can completely screw you over and uh, nothing happens to you. Oh, nothing happens to them. Yeah, if it's anything outside of weather or a yeah. seagull hitting the uh, engine, which happened to me once, uh, they, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. So here's what the Wall Street Journal says about this, this flight. Three days, four mechanical cancellations, stuck in Peru. I mean, I'm sure Peru's okay, but it's, you know, it's not like you're stuck in Vegas or Rome or something, you know what I mean, where you're like, you'll, you'll find a way to enjoy yourself. Anyway, the journal writes, it's a case study of the choices airlines make when flights go badly wrong and how that impacts travelers. In this case, American didn't take extra steps to resolve a bad situation, and it went worse fast. The airline, which had a nightmare summer stemming in part from a contract dispute with its mechanics, says labor isn't to blame for the Lima debacle. Instead, it was bad luck. Oh, of course. I would describe it as one of those perfect storms, unfortunately, says Jose Frig. Americans managing director of Latin American operations. The reality is if we knew Monday we'd be having a conversation about this on Wednesday, I think different decisions would have been made. You don't say. Delays can stretch for several days from time to time. Short of accidents, they're the worst thing that an airline can do to its customers. Uh, so they just go through all this. And, you know, they, they, they can walk you through this whole store, just all the... They, they take you through all the different delays and they show you these people that are just trying to get out of there. And then they finally get, I mean, you can imagine, I can't even walk you through all, but it's basically, oh yeah, we're going to take off. Oops, sorry, another mechanical error. Oh, we're going to take off. Whoops, nope, another mechanical error. Which also makes you wonder, I mean, how do they manage to do this? Here's what they tell you. If you're stranded, this is from the Wall Street Journal, have your own operations center at home, a relative travel savvy friend or travel agent who can hunt for alternatives and get you rebooked i've had to do that i almost missed a speech in idaho but i called my brother who had access to two computers with wi-fi on them and we went wild and actually found a ticket otherwise i would have missed a big speech um they so have somebody who's your point person to help you rebook if you need it because trying to do it on your phone it just is it's very hard next one this is the advice in the wall street journal for you savvy flyers out there take a bird in the hand always your flight may get repaired and go, but always grab a healthy plane over a sick one. Odds are it's more reliable. I've had to do that, too. I took a plane from Vegas to San Diego for a speech, and if I had waited for the initial plane to get fixed, I would have been two hours late for the speech and missed the whole thing. When you can get on a healthy plane, do it. Use social media. I did this with Verizon. You'll get more attention making a fuss. Most airlines have their social media desks inside their operations centers where staffers can get answers quickly. Also, fly earlier in the day. That leaves you more time to get on other flights and know your rights, but they are few. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But those, those are important bits of advice. Always take the healthy plane. If you get an option to get where you're going, don't wait for the plane you're on and eat the expense. It's always, you know, whatever it is, it's always going to be. If you're flying, you can afford to take a different flight. That's, I've learned that. Another thing is if you have to be somewhere, never fly the same day. I don't care how short the flight is. Never fly the same day. You gotta fly the day before. Find a way. That has saved my bacon so many times. Um, I never do same day travel for a speech, speaking engagement, anything like that at all. You know, big interview. Um, and then making a fuss on social media. That's right. You gotta like tweet at me 
And I'll be like, yo, why aren't you taking care of Team Buck? And then we'll blast that out, and we'll really send the operations center into a tizzy. Anyway, nightmare flight stuff, folks. Now you've got some advice. We'll be right back. This is one of these news stories, and welcome back to the Buck Saxon Show. This is one of these news stories that is not important, but I want to talk about it anyway. Coming up in a few minutes, I'll tell you about the latest instance of cancel culture in action that I think is just, it just shows you how toxic this is and how journalists in particular really like the power of destroying private citizens who come on their ra- come on their radar in a way that offends politically correct sensibilities or, or wokeness. Um, I'll give you all the details of that in, in a few minutes. It's a pretty, it's a, there's an unexpected twist, by the way, as well. It involves the young man that raised all that money, saying he wanted beer money and put out his Venmo. So I think you'll want to hear that. But this is not nearly as, as serious as that. I just want to take a moment. And this is also, I understand that some of you, sometimes I do segments where I know some of you are going to get a little annoyed at me, and that's okay. You know, it's like, it's like in a family, not all conversations are going to end with hugs and high fives. You know, sometimes you got to have it out a little bit over something. There is this piece of New York Times, I would say, feline propaganda out there that tries to claim that cats bond with people as much as dogs do. I will give you some of the introduction here. In the, in the perennial battle over dogs and cats, there's a clear public relations winner. Dogs are man's best friend. They're sociable, faithful, and obedient. Our relationship with cats, on the other hand, is often described as more transactional, aloof, mysterious, and independent. Cats are with us only because we feed them. Or maybe not. On Monday, researchers reported that cats are just as strongly bonded to humans as dogs or infants, vindicating cat lovers across the land. I'm sorry. I, I can't even bring in hashtag science here. I just find... That this is, I, I, I don't buy it. I'm not going to say it's fake news, but I think the pro-cat lobby is, I think they're pumping a lot of big dollars. Move over NRA, baby. The feline lobby is causing problems here. Producer Brandon, are you a cat person? I wasn't, but I am now. My, my girlfriend's really? cat. Uh, so, so I'm just saying this because I, years ago, long, long time ago, dated, dated a young woman who had a cat that was mean and would scratch me sometimes. Probably the cat was, you know, on to something, but would scratch me. And I always was like, why do you have a cat that scratches people? And I never really got a good answer. What is your experience like? I, and I'm a dog person. I love dogs. Love I'll, them. I'll preface everything. I'm allergic to dogs. Okay. So I became a cat person at first by default. But this cat would hiss at me and was angry at me for about six months. And I learned just how to approach it. And now he's my cuddle bug. Really? <laughs> yeah. You turned it around. I did. I'm proud of myself. Yeah. Producer Mark, where are you on this? The battle of the ages, cats versus dogs. Um, majorly a dog person. I hate cats. Yeah. I think they're disgusting. I mean, I, look at you. Mm. The, the, the email is teambuck at iheartmedia.com for those that want to, you know, want to send something to Producer Mark I mean, on that What one. do cats do? They just sit there and they poop in your house. You know, they- They're not cuddly. They don't want to- they don't approach you. I mean, Brandon's almost killed him. I've heard stories about how they'll go out and kill small animals and bring them to their owners, yeah. like yes. as a gift. Is yes. that a, that's a thing that they do? It's, he's left mice. Uh, yeah, they like to yeah. leave mice for you. Like yeah. they're trying to help out. That's why so. there's cats in every bodega in New York City to catch the mice. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Uh. So they are. They do do one useful thing. 
But they're so cute. What's that? They catch the mice. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that you know, I've read these, these scientific studies out there about how, uh, you know, that, that dogs, after they've been domesticated, their eyes have gotten bigger and all this because they're trying to just, like, fool human beings into thinking that they love us when really we're just, like, food receptacles for them. I don't care. Mission accomplished, little wolf wolf friends. You're amazing, and I want to feed you all the time and, and hang out and, and snuggle with you. But the, uh, the problem that I have is, you know, with my schedule, you know, I can't leave little, uh, little Fido. That's something hours. else. You can leave the cat alone. Does How long thing. can you leave a cat alone for? A couple days. We've gone on vacation for a couple days. Just leave food out. Maybe oh. a friend check in on it, make sure he's okay or she's okay. I will okay. say, I also, I find that fat cats, and now I sound like Bernie Sanders, the fat cats, the millionaires, <laughs> the billionaires, but, you know, fat, actually, at like adipose tissue covered cats, like cats that are, are um, uh, of girth. I find them cuter than the, the than their like skinny counterparts. I gotta say, it's so fat cats more Garfield like and less voluptuous. Yeah, like. yeah, yeah. A zoftig, a zoftig kitty would be one way to one way to describe it. So I think that they're better that way. But this is what the science says now. They're saying turns out that you know, blah blah. Cats and dogs love people about the same amount. Here we've got a little bit of the study here. In the experiment, which, oh wait, here we go. There's a similar test that they use for human infants. It's based on the theory that infants form an innate bond with caretakers that manifests as a strong desire to be near that person. In the experiment, which lasted six minutes, cat and kitten owners entered an unfamiliar room with their animals. After two minutes, the owner left the room, leaving the cat or kitten alone, a potentially stressful experience for the animal. When the owner returned two minutes later, the researchers observed the feline's response. About two-thirds of cats and kittens came to greet their owners when they returned and then went back to the exploring of the room, periodically returning to the owners. These animals, the researchers concluded, were securely attached to their owners, meaning they viewed them as a safe base in an unfamiliar situation. Oh, the kitty views you as like a shelter in the storm. Isn't that nice? All right, maybe, I don't know. Maybe cat would be... People are going to tell me, I'm going to get the emails. I know, they're going to say, my cat's so cool. You know, his name is like, you know, cool cat. And he, I couldn't think of a good name. And he and he will just come and like snuggle alongside you. And then he'll be like, yo, like let's go out and go chase mice around the yard together. And like my cat's so, so much personality, people always say. But you notice how dog people never have to sell you on it. They're like, yeah, my dog's awesome. Because they're it. always happy. But I feel like you have to earn something with the cat. I feel like I... Earned a badge or something, the cat badge. I mean, look, it does feel a tiny bit transactional. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. You know, the cat's there, and it's kind of just like, you know, meow. Give me my food, and you're like, all right, I guess so. Anyway, I know this is not like we had a very heavy day of breaking news, and the cat stuff is is a little bit in the who cares category. Uh, but I thought it was interesting because also I really am thinking about getting a dog. I'm hoping in the next twelve months. I'm hoping. Um, and also send all of your pro-cat hate mail t- addressed in the subject line to producer Mark because he took, he took the anti-cat stand here. And uh, you can send it to producer Mark in the subject line, teambuck at iheartmedia.com. And maybe we'll have you read some of them, producer Mark. Sure. Yeah. I'll defend myself. I hate cats. There you go. I mean, I don't hate them. I'm just saying I think dogs love people more. But I don't hate them. I'm not a cat hater. Uh, but then again, I'm the host, so I can't really... I can't really get everybody too riled up. That's not a good idea. Um, we are going to talk about this cancel culture situation. Vo- involves the uh, Des Moines Register and a journalist there who made, I think, a, a very 
uh, uncharitable decision about somebody who was very much involved in charity. Uh, we will get to this. It's a story you probably haven't heard yet today, and I'm going to walk you through the whole thing. Tells us a lot about cancel culture. Stick around for that. What exactly is cancel culture? What does cancel culture mean? What does it look like? We, we have a particularly um, powerful case of what cancel culture is, courtesy of the biggest newspaper in Iowa, the Des Moines Register. Now, you may have heard about a 24-year-old Iowan named Carson King. Recently, he became quite well-known because he was at a football game and he held up a sign asking people to donate beer money to him. And at first he got, uh, it says, Bush, sli- Bush Light Supply, I'm trying to look at his actual tweet, Bush Light Supply needs, needs replenished, Venmo, and then he had his, his name, Carson King. And this guy started, and people sent him, they thought it was funny, so they sent him money. By the way, I need to think of, you know, Venmo the, Venmo the Freedom Hut. We need to keep the lights on, you know. We'll do, I'll do history podcasts or something. I'll give out my Venmo on the air. I yeah, I was going to say, if people want to just send me money, I, I, I could think of a lot of very good things to do with that money. But back into this story and, and to cancel culture and action, because I do think it's important. You have this young man, Carson King, 24 years old. And what starts as a joke on on his Instagram, and people you know make uh, all of a sudden it's a few thousand dollars. He says, "Well, he's going to donate money to a children's hospital," and all of a sudden his social media fifteen minutes of fame, so to speak, turns into uh, over a million dollars that he has raised. So he, he, he takes over a million dollars and he's giving it to the University of Iowa's Stead Children's Hospital. So this guy's raising all this money and he's not keeping it for beer. He's giving it all to a hospital, a very worthy charity, uh, Children's Hospital. And Bush Light and Venmo, by the way, Bush Light, haven't seen that since college. Not gonna lie. I didn't know that, that was a thing that people still drank really. I mean, and I'm not a beer guy because I can't anymore because of gluten, but I used to drink beer and I did recall that Bush Light was not exactly, it was not exactly the Lagavulin of beers. It's up there with Natty Light. Yeah. Also known as Natural Light, I believe is the, Sorry, that's what the name on Natty Light's, the name on Natty Light's ID is Natural Light. So. Sorry. Yes. I'm just saying. So the uh, Des Moines Register decided that they were going to do a routine background check. Uh, this guy, Aaron Calvin, was uh, going to do a routine background check, they said, of his social media history when they were doing a profile of Carson King. So let's just understand. He's not a public person. He's raising money for a children's hospital using his Instagram account. He's 24 years old. The Des Moines Register is going to do a profile of him, and they said they did a, quote, routine background check of his social media history. If that feels a little Orwellian to you, I, I think it should. Is this now the standard? Anytime anyone comes into the public public eye, public view, their all their old tweets are now fair game. Well, we we have to hear all of a sudden about anything that they may have written, including back to when they were teenagers. I mean, thank heavens that you know my whole generation, we didn't have 
iPhone cameras and Twitter and Instagram back in the high school days because this this crew that I ran around with here in New York City, they were getting in all kinds of trouble, you know, doing, doing all kinds of mayhem. Um, but that's now, you know, all youthful indiscretions. People have kind of let that all go and everyone's grown up. But now you have people memorializing for really on the Internet for all eternity. Every stupid thought or idea they have as teenagers sometimes because they say things. And this is one of those moments where it came back to haunt somebody. Um, so Aaron Calvin, the Des Moines Register reporter, does this routine background check. And he sees it back. By the way, he didn't. I'm assuming he must have gone pretty far back in this guy's tweets because he goes back to 2012 when Carson King was a 16 year old high school student. And he said, or he wrote two tweets that were very stupid, very racist. No question about it. Very dumb, very racist tweets. Highly, highly inappropriate stuff. Okay. Carson King, uh, you know, has to hold a press conference because the Des Moines Register tells him that they are going to include this. They're going to include this in the profile about him, that, you know... Now, going on eight years ago, when he was 16 years old, he put out two racist tweets, which is a reminder, I should do this. I think everybody should do this. You know, once a year, you should just go back and just delete all your old tweets. You're just leaving oppo research on the table for people. I mean, yes, there's also the point of view here. Don't tweet something at any age that's that's very stupid and very racist. But some people get in trouble for things in their, in their past on Twitter. You look at it, you're like, that's not even really that bad. This was This was bad, but the guy was 16 years old. And it has nothing to do with what he's doing now, which is raising money for a children's hospital. Okay? So he appeared on TV and local stations, and he apologized for this. Um, and Anheuser-Busch uh, InBev, which owns uh, not Natural Light, the other one. What, it was not Natural Light. It was, uh, right? What was the? Bush Light, you Bush said? Light. Thank you. Yes, Anheuser-Busch. Bush Light. That makes sense. So they severed ties with them, but they are going to keep their pledge to donate money to this children's hospital. So that's good. So the, the children's hospital isn't losing out of money. But this guy, Carson King, who was very, very sorry when this was pointed out to him right away, you know, now he's been branded a racist. And what he tweeted at 16 has nothing to do with what he's doing now. So I would just want to know, what was the journalistic impulse here? As a journalist, I, I think, first of all, I, I have two big questions. One, why, when you're doing a profile on what someone's doing to raise money for a charity, he's not a political figure. No, you know, he's not. He's, he's not a target in that way. Why are you going deep diving in his social media history? I, I think that's this has become. Well, I'll tell you why I think it's because these uh, these journalists are hoping to latch on to something to make it an even bigger story and that they can that they have found. Right. So now they've added. Oh, and not only is this happening, but he is. uh He's a guy who wrote this back in the day or that back in the day, and it just adds and they think it gets them more clicks. But I think that there's another another component of it, which is that the journalists today think of themselves as the woke, the woke police and the social media police, in a sense. That they have an obligation now to look in anyone's past and find any violations of. Well, this isn't a violation of wokeness. I mean, this was a violation of common sense, and it was a stupid thing for the guy. Two things that he tweeted were very dumb. But to look for somebody who has, who has transgressed uh, the bounds of, of good taste, uh, the bounds of 
things that you you should uh, share in public. And I just think that that's it's a shame that we're at that point that now everybody has to go through this vetting process, no matter who they are and what they're doing, just because journalists are always looking to make an example of another person. The Des Moines Register put out the following as a statement from their editor. And I'm going to read this to you because I think that it's one, it tells you the story here. And two, um, you can tell me or you can decide for yourselves whether you think that this is fair minded or not. This is a statement from the editor, Carol Hunter, quote, some of the toughest decisions in journalism are about what to publish or not. People around the nation have been captivated by the heartwarming story of Carson King, the 24-year-old Iowan whose handmade game day sign asking for beer money prompted hundreds of dollars in donations. And then when he decided to donate the money to Stead Family Children's Hospital, hundreds of thousands of dollars poured in. On Monday evening, registered reporter Aaron Calvin was assigned to interview King for a profile. On Tuesday, as he worked to write the story, he did a routine background check huh, on King that included a review of publicly visible social media posts, a standard part of a reporter's work on a profile. Is that really the case? Calvin found two racist jokes that King had posted on Twitter in 2012. Calvin asked King about them, and he expressed deep regret. That prompted a discussion involving several register editors about how best to proceed. Should that material be included in the profile at all? The jokes were highly inappropriate and were public posts. Shouldn't that be acknowledged to all the people who had donated money to King's cause or were planning to do so? Question mark. Now let me jump in there. Um, I don't think that one has anything to do with the other. He's raising money for a children's hospital. He's not running for office. I, I think that, look, this is a judgment call. I think that they very clearly made the wrong judgment here. But she goes on. The counter argument, the tweets were posted seven years ago when King was 16 and he was remorseful. Should we chalk up the post to a youthful mistake and omit the information? Eventually, register editors decided we would include the information, but at the bottom of the story. Well, that means you're including it. We thought we should be transparent about what we had found, but not highlighted at the top of the story or as a separate story. It was planned as a few paragraphs toward the bottom of the profile. But the decision about how to use this information was preempted when King held a news conference to discuss his tweets and express his remorse. By the way, I think he did. That's the right move. Get ahead of it. The news conference was covered by local television, which reported on the racist posts and King's remorse. Those uh, after those stories aired, Bush Light's parent company announced it would honor its pledge to the Children's Hospital, but would sever future ties with King. This happened before the register published its profile of King, which is still in the editing process. Yeah, but you had told him that you were going to publish this, guys. Come on. King also posted on, uh, on Facebook, the Des Moines Register has been nothing but kind in all their coverage. I appreciate them pointing this out to me. Uh, reasonable people can look at the same set of facts and disagree on what merits publication, Carol Hunter writes. Uh, uh, but rest assured, such decisions are not made lightly and are rooted in what we perceive as the public good. Um, okay. So their position is it was a tough call, but we decided that we needed to tell people. And then he held the press conference and, oh, he said that we made the right move. So I guess it's all fine. Des Moines Register has gotten dragged for this. And I think that's right. We know a bunch of libs run the Des Moines Register, obviously. And they come from a mindset of, you know, there's no grace. There's no forgiveness. If, if it's going to get clicks and if it's a violation of wokeness protocol not to publish something, you got to publish it. 
But there's a twist to the story, my friends. There's a twist that I haven't even alluded to yet. Guess what? The reporter, Aaron Calvin. Oh, looks like Aaron Calvin has a little problem. So he went deep diving in Carson King's Twitter feed and didn't think that maybe when he did this, people might deep dive into his Twitter feed. Uh Uh-oh. I'll give you what that led to right after the break. So I'm telling you about how cancel culture works in real life. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We have the story of the Des Moines Register where uh, there was this young man, 24 years old, raised a million dollars for Children's Hospital, Carson King, and Aaron Calvin, reporter for the Des Moines Register, finds some racist tweets from when, when, uh, when Calvin King was, uh, Carson King rather, was 16 years old. And guess what? Uh-oh, there's a little problem here. It turns out that, uh, and now he's deleted them, of course. Calvin, who is the reporter of the Des Moines Register, in now-deleted tweets from 2010 to 2013, so recently, or more recent than the other tweets that he uh, unearthed from the man raising money for the children's hospital, quote, this is from Fox News Today, Calvin repeatedly used the N-word... And wrote posts attacking law enforcement like F all cops. And in reaction to the legalization of gay marriage said he's quote totally going to marry a horse. Calvin issued an apology for these tweets. He wrote hey this was on Twitter. Hey I want to say I've deleted previous tweets that have been inappropriate or insensitive. I apologize for not holding myself to the same standards as the register holds others. Huh. Of course, now, despite all this, they are uh, the executive editor and others are defending uh, defending this reporter. I just want to note, isn't this exactly what we should expect to happen in these cases that you're going to have people who go after another human being? Look, it wasn't a good faith thing to dive into this guy's social media accounts. Why? Why? Look, the tweets were racist. The guy was obviously very sorry for them. He hadn't even thought about them, I'm sure, in the last eight years or whenever it was that this that he posted them. But the very person who is playing judge, jury, and executioner with this young man's future, with Carson King's future, it turns out that, oh, he's made some mistakes of his own here. Oh, you mean to say that uh, he also... I mean, this guy's used, this guy's using the... Using the N-word in tweets? Uh, hmm. And he's a journalist, right? He's a professional. You'd think that he should, or he would be expected to hold himself to a higher standard. But this is the problem with wokeness and cancel culture and the way the left approaches all of this now is that they don't want there to be one standard for everyone. They want there to be a standard for those that are outside the circle of those they care about. And let's be honest here, Car- there's nothing about Carson King that makes the left uh, particularly like him. Even giving money to a children's hospital, that's not, that doesn't protect you. He's a young white guy who drinks beer and goes to football games. That makes him a very, uh, a very clear target to a lot of lib journos. They think to themselves, oh, well, here, here's a, an, a, an opportunity for us to make an example of somebody who is not among the protected. You see, Carson King is not among the protected at all. But the journalist, Aaron Calvin, who 
made this determination. Look, I'm just going to say it. If I'm that journalist, if I'm Aaron Calvin, I, and, I, and I see this, even if I'm not looking for it, I sit down with Carson King, and I, I do work in media. And look, I've, I've protected people's reputations when I thought it was called for. I've protect, I certainly always protect confidentiality, but I've protected reputations that I didn't think needed to be smeared or people needed to pile on or whatever the case may be. I make those determinations. We all do. We're human beings. The right thing to do outside of this cancel culture mentality would have been to sit down with Carson. Sorry, it's Calvin and Carson, so it's tough to get the name straight. Calvin's a journalist. Carson's the guy raising the money. And say, look, Carson, you got this stuff, man. You got to, you know, you understand that that's really messed up, right? And you need to delete that right away. And if he goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. You're right. They're deleted. I was an idiot. You know, I was high or I was drunk or I was just being stupid or whatever it was. I'm so sorry. You say, all right, man. Good job on raising a million dollars for kids who are fighting cancer and kids who, you know, are, are dealing with terrible diseases. So we'll just make that. The, we're going to do that as the story that you raise the money for them. You know, don't ever pull any of this stupid crap again. Now, you could say to me, Buck, oh, but journalists, you know, they no journalists make these determinations all the time about what to print and not to print. And even as the executive editor said, journalists make all kinds of look at the, the mainstream news. It's just a constant propaganda filter for left-wing ideology. So they're always making determinations about, you know, who they're going to, you know, look at how many liberal journalists write about Hunter Biden's obvious cocaine habit while he's working for the United States military, while he's serving in uniform, right? I mean, how many news outlets decide that that's worth just popping in there? Some do, some don't. I think that the decision to have offered uh, personal forgiveness and some grace to Carson King, especially given what he's doing, which he's raising money for children in a hospital, folks. He's not political. That would have been the better move. Instead, the Des Moines Register destroyed somebody and may have destroyed one of their own journalists in the process. Perhaps that's fair play. I guess you could say it's somewhere that's justice. But I wish we would get rid of this cancel culture because cancel culture is a cancer on our society. <laughs> Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. I like that one. Brandon, you remember when, was it, uh, what was the music? Remember like Zoot Suit Riot and all that in the 90s? The Cherry Poppin' Daddies. Is that? The Cherry Poppin' Daddies, yeah. But you know, what do you call that with the... Swing? Swing, yes. Yeah. Swing music. I mean, swing music was Big so band. cool for a little while that I wanted to. I wanted to learn how to swing dance so I could woo all the ladies. Oh yeah. It turns a- out I should have just taken you know more time in the gym and made more money. But you know what I mean. But you know, <laughs> either way, either way, either way. But or sw- swing dancing is definitely an option, I suppose. You know, zoot suit riot. Yeah. Swig back a bottle of beer or something. Isn't that what that it was? sounds about right? Sounds something like that. It's on my uh, playlist. Believe it also, or not. Also, um, you remember the mighty mighty Boston's, which oh. were kind of yeah. I know you're a music guy. You're a DJ. Ska. They're yeah. still kind ska, of. Ska. That's what I was thinking. So there's ska and there's swing. And those were two things that were very big for a while. <laughs> yes. And I feel like they have faded a little bit. Um, I will say that when we go into roll call these days, we definitely have more in the way of. I like that the email inbo- that the email box is open now, but we have more in the way of. Um, uh Facebook messages, then we do emails. But we'll get to some of the, the email, I mean, the Facebook inbox is always very jammed. So those of you that say you don't like Facebook surveillance state nonsense and everything, I'm just saying, 
You know, where's the where's the where's the love in the email inbox? It's coming through Facebook. I'm telling you, people. Once you get in the habit of writing messages on Facebook, it's just so much easier, so much better. Okay, so um, let's get to it. Uh, hold on a second. We have first up Kelly. Who writes? You spoke briefly about. Oh, the, sorry. This is not on Facebook. This is Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Our official, unofficial email. Uh, Buck, you spoke briefly about homelessness the other day. What we have in Seattle is not a homeless problem. It is a lawless street dweller problem. I'm sure there are some people who are homeless due to bad decisions or bad luck. The city of Seattle has coddled the lawless street dwellers until they've taken over all our public spaces. Parks, freeway garden spaces and sidewalks. These people are addicts, alcoholics or just plain lazy who've decided they don't want to work and have families and be part of civil society. They're anywhere from teens through old men. Don't let the libs dictate the language. This nation doesn't have a homeless problem. We have a lawless sweet, uh, street dweller epidemic. Shields high, Kelly. Uh, Kelly, I have read I have read articles about. People who make what's considered a the choice of homelessness, they decide that they they want to be transients or vagrants or whatever the preferred nomenclature may be. Um, they they've just moved on to that place already where they think that they should be able to you know live on the streets, live a life on the streets. And there are some people. I think it's a small percentage. I believe what I'd seen is that may, maybe ten percent of the homeless population are vagrants by choice. But I've seen this before. I've seen people who are clearly sleeping on the streets who are able-bodied young people and they're even in their twenties. And sometimes they'll walk around with backpacks and dogs and they'll have cell phones, but they're still living in the street or living in this trend. Now, maybe they go, there's a house that they will go to sometimes or, but you can tell they're living on the streets. Anyway, um, look, liberal policies that make it very easy to be a um, a vagrant, that's part of this problem. There's the market issue of interfering in the market to prevent people from being able to build quality housing for low-income people because there's all these different rules and regulations around it and, and zoning issues. I mean, real ironclad stuff that if you're going to be a builder, you have to get around. Uh, and then once you add rent control into the situation, well, rent control is just a rent control is a terrible thing, by the way. And I know that there are people in New York City that I know who have rent control, who have rent control departments, and they love it because they get to not have to worry about paying full market rent. But in general, it just creates greater housing scarcity. Uh, especially if there's the possibility of additional rent control that comes into play for new development, then you got a real problem because people say, well, why am I going to spend all this money and time and, and be a developer and go through all the headaches if I can't make full market profits? Uh, Dan writes, Buck, I haven't really looked into Hunter Biden and I'm skeptical because the news media on both sides tends to exaggerate on some subjects. How accurate are the allegations concerning Hunter Biden in regard to cocaine, marrying his brother's widow, and receiving money from Ukraine and China? If true, do you see it coming out and blowing up the Biden campaign? Shields high. Uh, Dan, the cocaine stuff is, that's, a, I believe, a matter of public record. 
I don't think that there's anyone who disputes that Hunter Biden um, was just was kicked out of the military, dishonorably discharged, I believe, for a positive cocaine, a positive cocaine test, a drug test. As for receiving money from Ukraine and China, yeah, he received the money. And you have to ask, well, why is he getting this money? And it may not be. Look, it's hard. This gets us back to what is corruption? What is a quid pro quo? It may not be the case that Hunter Biden did anything where you could say, aha, now you're going to be charged criminally. But he's also taking jobs or, or taking positions, not even jobs. I mean, he's just to be on the board of Burisma if you're Hunter Biden just means that they've opened up a spigot of money and they're just pouring it into your bank account every month, $50,000 every month. That's he's not doing Maybe he appears at a quarterly board meeting or something, but probably can do it virtually. It's it's the easiest money you're ever going to make. The Easiest money. Um, let's see. We have MJ. MJ writes, um, this is uh, MJ here in the very liberal city of Vancouver. Ooh, Team Buck Canada in the house. I was born and raised here, but I actually have my U.S. citizenship via my dad being born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, the battleground state. I'm a conservative, fellow gray-bearded millennial like yourself. I'm a Trump supporter and a bit of a closet political junkie. I wish I had joined Team Buck from the early days, but I saw you on Bill Maher a few months back and have followed you ever since. Well, thank you so much, MJ. I appreciate it. I, you know, I think I, I have been told by many people who are Bill Maher watchers that that was the, the strongest a pro-Trump conservative had managed to be on that very hostile show in a very long time. Anyway, MJ writes, I listen to your show podcast every day. So much I could get into, and I agree with pretty much all your views. You've got me fired up on this Greta the climate change girl thing. Uh, total exploitation. I wish her parents or someone close to her would see it. The Dems will just parade her around as their shiny climate change warrior, uh, warrior princess. Disgusting. Anyway, love that all you're doing. Keep sticking it to the lib. Shields high. MJ. P.S. Love your impersonations. As a Canadian, just dial back a little on the French on Trudeau and you'll nail it. Oh, but uh, Trudeau is um, he's not really, uh, he's not even really French-Canadian, is he? He, sound, he has almost no accent, but it makes, it makes him seem more Trudeau-like if you just lean into it a little bit, no? I tried to watch, have you guys seen this, uh, the guy who plays Aquaman, what's his name? He was also Car- uh, Drago, Dra- Drago and not- Momoa. Jason Momoa, thank you. Uh, he's in this show um, where he's, it's about the Hudson Bay Company in Canada. I've seen it, a, I think it's Frontier. It's called Frontier. Have you guys seen this? It should be good, and there's some elements of it that are pretty cool. By the way, Hudson Bay Company was a really big deal. Who knew that people would, like, go to war over beaver pelts back in the day? Beaver pelts, very, very big business for a while. You know, we forget there are these periods in history where certain things were incredibly valuable. Of course, the tulip mania in the Netherlands, uh, beaver pelts in you know, North America, uh, rum was a very valuable, it still is a very valuable commodity. Reminds me, I got I to gotta get some Lagavulin. I had some the other night. You guys ever had that? I only drink it because Ron Swanson drinks it from Parks and Rec, but it is amazing if you've never Is that tried. rum? No, Lagavulin's whiskey. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Not a whiskey guy. And I never really know. Isn't Scotch just Scottish whiskey? Is that right? Because I, I always get them confused. I know bourbon has to be from Kentucky. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting off track here a little bit. But the, uh, which happens. 
The show Frontier, though, it's it's on Netflix. Jason Momoa is in it. He does a good job, but it just the writing's just not that good. And I was going to be like, why don't you guys just bring in somebody who's going to think of really cool ideas for your story? I I, I just don't understand having a bad storyline for a Netflix show. To me, it's like having a bad restaurant in a major American city. It's like, how is this even possible? We all know what good food tastes like, and it's not hard to do good food. We all know what an entertaining show should be, and yet, and I tried to watch uh, Russian Doll. Couldn't even get through one episode. It's it's a little bit like Bill Murray's Groundhog Day, which I think is a great movie, by the way. For those, have you seen that one? Youngin, Young no, Blood. Have no, you seen I have that not. one? All right. You just like to make me seem young every time. All right. I'm just you know just making sure we all we all know what we're dealing with over here, producer producer Mark. Uh, but you so you have seen that's a good movie. It holds up. I said I haven't. What? So you are young. Yeah. That's what I was saying. You like to make me seem young. Yeah, I know. I, I wasn't even trying to call you out. I figured every who hasn't seen Ground. I know. Producer Brandon is looking at you like we got work to do. Here. It's on TV every Groundhog. I don't have. Cable. It's a. Good, it's one of Bill Murray's. I think ten best, maybe five best. I mean, Ghostbusters is number one, always and forever. And Bill Murray and Caddyshack. He basically carries the movie in Caddyshack one, but. I think that uh, if you're looking for all-around Bill Murray performance, um, you, you can't do much better than Groundhog Day, which is very good. All right, we're going to hit a quick pause here. When we come back, we'll have we'll have more of the roll call. We'll go into the Facebook side of the equation. Stay with me. So I've got exciting news for you, team. Assuming that technology cooperates with us, and that producer Mark doesn't go on strike at the last minute. Uh, we, not yet. Like, wait till after the wedding, all right? Is that an option? Yeah, no. Mm. And we'll call in the strike breakers. Um, I don't even know what that would be, but... Producer uh-huh. Mark and I are going to give you guys an early Christmas present this year, which is we're moving the, we're moving the podcast of the Buck Saxon Show to 3 p.m. Eastern every day. So for those of you that are here in the show who are like, oh my gosh, you know, I love listening to the show, but I wish it was earlier on. Guess what? It can be. You can listen at 3 p.m. All you have to do is download, subscribe, and then it'll always download for you uh, the podcast on iTunes, on i on the iHeart app. What are the other platforms, Mark? You know them better. Spotify. What Spotify are the cool kids there, listen to? Stitchers on there, I Stitcher, believe. Spotify. Everywhere podcasts are. Everywhere uh, fine podcasts are listen to. Okay. Yeah. Pretty much. It. Are we on? No, but there was one that we used to be on that we're not anymore. Um, Google Play, I think we nah. would be on. We're, we're, I think we're on Google Play. Yeah. But there was a, another one that was kind of SoundCloud. Are we not on SoundCloud or we are? I don't think so. SoundCloud is yeah. not really a podcast thing anymore. Oh, like, really? Okay. Music, yeah. It used to be a podcast platform for us. But anyway, so find a podcast platform and we'll be on it and it'll be great. So there you go. And download and listen multiple times a day. Exactly. Extra. Listen as much as you want yeah, and please. share that podcast with your friends who are like, ah, oh, I get stuck in traffic a lot. What am I going to do? Like, listen, this guy, Buck Sexton. I have had, I had two people today stop me. I was walking around Midtown uh, running errands, and I had two people stop me, and they're like, I love your radio show. So, you know what, folks? I get that going for me, which is nice. All right, let's get to what you've got going for you, which is roll call right now. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Rob, great show as always, sir. One question. Why does Nancy Pelosi refer to Biden as a political opponent when they have not determined who the Dem candidate will be? Did she slip? What did Bernie think of this statement? Well, and Rob, I, I see your point, and I think it's, it's a fair point, but look, they're, they're, they're saying 
that the presumptive nominee for the Democrats right now, based on the polls and just name recognition, and everything else is Joe Biden. And so the Democrat position on this is, oh, we are trying to uh, uh, trying to eliminate Trump's primary political rival with this illicit investigation, which is I think this is nonsense, but this is what they're saying. So this is where things are. Um, let's see here. Uh, Sky writes, uh, greetings from Texas. Been listening to you for a while. You should agree with your assist, uh, assessments of the political blight. Keep up the great work, and I enjoy your spunky humor. Hugs. Well, thank you, Sky. I enjoy your kind messages. She also writes, I find it so hard to believe that people believe the lies of the deep state. Reminds me of Cain and his hatred for Abel, but he thinks he's smarter than God and more just. Man playing God is a scary thing. Look, I can change the weather. Just bow to me. Whoa, the asylums are empty and the patients are making laws. A voice in the madness you are. Bravo. Sky, sending me some of my favorite messages of the day. So, indeed, thank you. Robert. Hey, Buck. Uh, Rob in Baltimore. I think Elizabeth Warren may not have been lying about being a Native American, Some Caucasians were able to register as Native Americans. Her ancestors may have been some who did and passed them down to her. No way she would have known the truth until the DNA test. Well, Rob, um, okay. Now, let's just assume that what you said is true. Um, Why then, when she got the DNA test, did she, uh, why did she decide that she would pretend that 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 was proof that she was in fact native american i think that's that's a a bit a bit off but uh, interesting nonetheless gina writes hey box of slightly different take on the banking thing i know that the overnight lending has stepped up over the last few weeks i've been in mortgage banking for over 30 years we saw 2007 coming however i think part of what is happening has to do with warehouse lines when a minor bank closes so many loans that exceed their available lines they must increase their lines to keep closing my company personally has exceeded their warehouse lines exponentially and must seek new credit to keep funding. Once we fund our loans, we must sell on the secondary market to replenish those lines. Part of this issue may be everyone is behind in funding and replenishing. Just a thought. Shields high. Um, all right, Gina, thank you. Uh, I don't know anything about that, so you have shared expertise that I do not have. So appreciate it. Here we go. Um Mary writes, whoops. Oh, there we go. Okay, Mary. My husband graciously purchased this for me. Thank you so much for introducing me to Liz Wheeler and her writing. Greatly look forward to diving the weekend. Tipping points of the book. Well, Mary, I'm so glad. You know, I try to bring great authors and just great minds onto the show as often as I can. And I hope you really enjoy Liz's book. And I wish her a lot of success. So, team, that's going to be it for today. Tomorrow, we start uh, going early on the podcast, folks. So, sign up now. And all you have to do is just subscribe. It's totally free. And tell friends about it. And we'll talk to you then. Shields high.